0: Tangible impact matters, and we can wax poetic about all kinds of change that's necessary, but unless we're actually grounding decisions in science, it's really hard to know that we're making the right decisions.
1: This
2: is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of
1: technology and health. Carolyn McGill had planned a life in foreign service or international relations, but it wasn't until she found herself at the nexus of healthcare and public policy that she realized she found her home. She's now traveled through the worlds of pharma, payers, providers, and had leadership positions at companies both large and small. Today, she's CEO of Adion, where she's helping change conventional healthcare wisdom through data science. This is Tectonics. I'm David Shaywitz. And I'm Lisa Soonan, and we're grateful to GE Ventures for their sponsorship today. GE Ventures, multiple paths to big impact. So, Lisa. Yes, David. Let's
2: try that again. <laughs> I, I didn't really sense some authentic enthusiasm. So, Lisa, David, there we go. That's what we're looking for. Um, so, we just finished up with the Oscars here. Yeah. Um, did you have a uh, have a dog in a race?
1: You know, I actually really liked Bohemian Rhapsody. That was my favorite. I liked a lot of the movies. I have to admit. But uh, Queen's one of my favorite bands, and I just, I loved the movie. Best Great. actor. Man. It won I that. know. I, I called that, too.
2: Boom, you're all over that. What
1: about you? Did you have a fave?
2: Uh, well, no, unless it shows up on uh, United, um, I don't really watch it. So.
1: <laughs> I watched it on a flight to Australia the other day. Perfect. Be um, Bohemian Rhapsody again. All right, so we're excited to have Carolyn with us today. And Carolyn, thank you so much for being on the show.
0: My pleasure. Thank you so much, Lisa and David. I'm glad to be here.
1: And I hear you got to go to an Oscar party a few weeks ago where Jamie Foxx hosted and John Legend performed. It must have been quite a different scene than the usual healthcare gathering at HIMSS. Anyone talking about AI or blockchain at your Oscar party?
0: Well, funny you should ask. We actually sat next to the physician for the um, biggest loser at dinner, <laughs> and we had lots of conversations about healthcare and treatment plans and how you come up with. Right, one for specific individuals, and you know, obviously, AI factors into that.
1: That's uh, that's kind of sad. I actually thought
2: it was kind of interesting. <laughs> no, on on that show, they've actually published some of the data, right? Because people have mm-hmm. had a huge, really challenging time sustaining the weight loss from that.
0: Well, yeah, he talked about that too, and in just the behavioral change that has to happen, right? So much of it is mindset and how we live our complete lives, and um, not just at a targeted point in time, but in a sustained way.
1: Yeah. Wow. Well, yeah. Very interesting. Um, I personally would have rather sat next to John Legend, but what can I tell you? By
2: the way, former BCG consultant. Did you know that? <laughs> Not kidding. B- really?
0: He was. Was he yeah. really? What?
2: Yeah, he was an associate. What do you True know? story. Key to, um, his, key to his success, I'm sure.
0: Yeah, he did. He did McKinsey. Yeah. That's no, right.
2: it wasn't B- McKinsey. See, I'm very sensitive about that. It was BCG. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Oh, my Lord, Was baby. it
0: BCG? Oh, for goodness sakes, I can't believe I got that wrong. There wow. you yes. go. Apologies. There you go. All righty. We'll <laughs> let it go, Carol, this time. So, hey, Carol, back to, back to you.
1: Um, <laughs> so your parents had very deep Irish roots. Much like Lisa's. Your parents had deep Irish roots, which played a, a formative role in your development, as I understand it. You even wrote your thesis about the IRA wow. and crisis bargaining uh, what about that heritage really spoke to you, and what in the heck is crisis bargaining?
0: <laughs> well, you and I live that every <laughs> day, I think, in the healthcare world, Lisa. <laughs> um, you know, uh, so yeah, so my, uh, my mother is from Ireland originally. My dad was born in the States to Irish parents. And, you know, very early on, I was um, familiar with the notion of, you know, the multiple perspectives. I was from the Boston area, where Irish pride was just, you know, sort of, in our blood: and, uh, <laughs> There you go. <laughs> um, and I, you, know, and I sort of grew up reading uh, all the novels and singing all the songs and such associated with the lore of, of Irish wow. history and, and rebel culture and kind of reveled in that. And then when I was 15, I did a, uh, an exchange program actually in Northern Ireland and stayed for the Protestant family up in Belfast. And it was just fascinating for me to understand the, the differences. Um, and just how there are multiple perspectives to any issue. And then also in my family history, um, you know, for my mother's family, they were from Ireland originally, and then lack of work had them relocate to England, and they had different experiences depending, you know, her and her siblings, depending on how old they were when they relocated. And so that too helped me appreciate the uh, the different points of view that one can have about the very same situation, the very same trigger can treat us differently. And that was just so fascinating that I um, ended up exploring it further, wrote my thesis on how governments and terrorist organizations negotiate and um, yeah, that may have uh, may have set the tone for <laughs> for my my time in healthcare. Even
1: we can joke about that, but seriously, does do you find that sort of orientation Framework. in healthcare that you know backing somebody into the corner and then renegotiating and, and on and on?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that I learned from writing the thesis and doing the research, which by the way was a really um, it was a really complicated process for me uh, emotionally, you know, in addition to uh, academically. But um, one of the things that I learned is that we need to keep our word. And I isolated a certain time in 1995 where we saw promises made. And then when terms were met, as of the promises, uh, the promises were reneged. And then we saw a capitulation when threats were levied. And I think the challenge is when we're communicating with other stakeholders, maybe we don't have aligned incentives or maybe we're not sure where the other party is coming from, we have to take the time to understand that. And the minute we say, you know, this is our red line in the sand, as it were, <laughs> this is uh, what we'll do if you meet these terms, mm-hmm. we have to be credible in that regard. We have to follow through. Otherwise, the next time we try to negotiate, we've lost all credibility.
2: Well, does, does this sort of sort of high-stakes negotiation, was this what drew you into a uh, foreign service and international relations?
0: It was. Yeah, yeah, it was. <laughs>
2: what about this sort of appeal to you? Was it sort of um, the high stakes nature of it? Was it the multicultural aspect? What what was it about it that really seemed to resonate?
0: Honestly, I think it's that it felt so important. And, I, you know, I've always kind of had a sense of duty, probably because I'm a male child, so I always had to see <laughs> how everybody was doing and, you know, keep everybody um, in a good place.
1: And uh, this oh, that's felt
0: really very important to me, and I also uh, felt like, you know, with, um, with good minds and, and people dedicated to a cause, you can really make a difference. And so I went down to D.C. I did this research fellowship on nuclear weapons and thought I'd get my Ph.D. That's what I was
2: going to ask you about on the level of doing things that are high stakes and important.
0: Yeah, I thought, I thought it was important.
2: So you, you, you were doing a fellowship on nuclear weapons. Wow.
1: So, you told me that um, you were working at the same time on nuclear weapons policy and waitressing, and then you decided (laughs) you like waitressing more. What was that about?
0: True. Um, You know, the the challenge with uh, writing a research report, especially at the time, and especially given the topic that I was investigating, is that much of it was done behind a computer and by myself, and reading and interpreting. And what I loved about waitressing, especially in Washington, D.C., in the mid to late 90s, is that, uh, you know, it's just such a multicultural place. There were always interesting people at my tables. Um, I was a terrible waitress. I'm pretty klutzy. (laughs) (laughs) But it's amazing. It's amazing how far you can get with a smile and and good conversation. So I always found it fun. Um, But the other problem that I had with this, um, with the work that I was doing, was just how hard it was to feel like we actually were having an impact, to to have a tangible impact. It was. It felt somewhat theoretical.
1: So you uh, decided not to take up a life of waitressing and went off to strategy consulting at Price Waterhouse, and that's where you learned about healthcare, right?
0: Yeah, that's right. I'd gotten on a bunch of different kinds of projects, and I finally ended up uh, consulting on a couple of biopharma engagements. And when I did, I just felt something click.
1: Why, why is that? What was it that, that worked for you there that, that hadn't worked for you in prior ideas?
0: You know, the work that we were doing in healthcare felt so tangible. So the challenge that I had when I was in D.C. is that it felt like there was a disconnect between the work we were doing and the people we were trying to influence. And it happened while I was down there that India and Pakistan tested nuclear weapons. So for two weeks, we were relevant. And then some other news cycle captured the nation's imagination, and it just sort of subsided, the interest subsided. Whereas in healthcare, it's relevant to you every single day. It doesn't matter how old you are, how much money you have, um, but it's the, the impact you can have is tangible.
1: That's great. So you were there at PwC for a while and then found your way to your first startup, a health IT company, right?
0: That's right, yeah. A couple of my managers broke off, and this was in the late 90s, joined an IT startup, and recruited me to join them in the healthcare practice.
2: What did the company do, and how did that go?
0: So it was an IT professional services firm, and our model was actually to use developers over in India to support uh, initiatives here in the U.S. And I was actually consulting over at Amgen, and that was my my first real taste into assay development and some of the other work that has to go into bringing a drug to market. We were building uh, specific applications and platforms for them, and I was documenting business requirements using UML.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and what did, did, how did that company do? Did it turn out okay? or?
0: Uh, you know it No. <laughs> it did. I, I, shouldn't <laughs> I shouldn't say that. We struggled a bit. We struggled a bit uh-huh. uh, with uh, you know, recurring revenue, predictability, as a lot of startups do. Um, we ended up eventually being acquired by different entities that it's now part of Cognizant, so my old colleagues are are there, so they ended up doing just fine, but I think as a startup, you know, there's maybe things we would have done differently if we could have done it all over again. Like what? You know, I think uh, being thoughtful about having a core competency and trying to stick to it. At the time, we were really adept programmers, and we thought we can figure anything out. It could be marketing, it could be finance, it you know could kind of be any uh, vertical in that regard, and we soon realized how complicated it can be. And mm-hmm. wearing a payer hat versus wearing a provider hat, as an example, versus a biopharma, there are very different considerations, and having a measure of expertise in those areas can pay off.
2: That's really interesting, because we often hear on the show, like, so the value of domain expertise in different realms, and it seems like this is another example where sort of being diffusely talented in healthcare, doesn't take you all the way you need, as far as you need to go. You need to have you know, sort of even more specific knowledge. Is that, is that what I'm hearing?
0: Yeah, or at least you need to be able to understand what questions to ask and know what you don't know. And I think as long as you come in with that kind of a curious mind, you can figure things out. But if you come in with a level of hubris or thinking like you know your payer way is the only way, as an example, we won't get very far.
2: So how did that experience then, you, your decision after that was then to, to sort of get a little bit more education and to get a, uh, you went to Wharton for an MBA. What was the thinking around that decision?
0: Yeah, so at the time I thought I would pursue a career in biopharma and huh. <laughs> I wanted to, um, wanted to get better grounding in how that, how that industry operates. But it was funny because in my very first class at Wharton, I was in the healthcare program there. Professor Lawton Burns goes through the entire healthcare system, and it just was like this light bulb came for me that to understand uh, how to have an impact on care, I had to know how we pay for it. And so then that set off my quest to join a payer.
2: Wow! So, it, what was what was unexpected? It seems like you know you sort of had this farmer perspective coming into that, and then what you learned there kind of shifted your worldview. What 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 was so shifting? What, what did you hear that was that changed your thinking?
0: You know, it could have been that class, or it could have been a movie thing, something like "Show me the money." <laughs> 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 but, and I mean that I mean that literally. Like the decisions that we make so often are geared towards the incentives that we have. Right? Or I know David, you've looked into um, unconscious bias and, and things like that as an example. And I think we, we you know we're often not aware of why we're choosing a, a given path versus another. And I thought it's very easy to demonize different stakeholders, and payers, of course, have been demonized over the years, and, and you could argue even were then, it was kind of an unpo- unpopular track to go to a health insurance company after Wharton. Uh, but it seemed very clear to me that unless I understood how we negotiated contracts between health insurance companies and providers and how we figured out what co- what care actually cost, how could we possibly understand what we should be paying for it?
1: So you're kind of back to the crisis bargaining mentality, right? <laughs> I mean, in a <laughs> yeah. way. Uh, so you went off to United. You couldn't get to a bigger payer than that. And you focus on the public sector business, Medicare and Medicaid. What... About that, surprised or intrigued you? You know, you were leading, for instance, I know you were leading a special needs plan serving dual eligibles, couldn't have a more complex population. The balance between clinical need and cost and payments and all that is really profound in a population like that. What was your revelation?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And that's what drew me to United in particular and then to Medicare and Medicaid. So, this is my way of marrying my passion for public policy with something that's really tangible. And what I found in in serving special needs populations in particular is how important it is to pay attention to specific needs of individuals. And we did all kinds of things that at the time seemed revolutionary, like, you know, recognizing uh, average handle time at the call center should change for people over the age of 65 who had multiple chronic illnesses or who had a cognitive impairment, right? Right. Uh, The average handle time right, is obviously measuring the length of time you're on with a call center rep, and the standard is to get off as quickly as you can. Well, geez, by staying a little bit longer, you start to figure out the reason why they need a new ID card or why they're contemplating going to see a specialist. And in those conversations, you start to realize more and more about what an individual actually needs. And so working on the special needs plans really helped me appreciate the, the kinds of things we can do, even from an administrative perspective. To support people.
2: How do you do a, a role like that and not just feel overwhelmed by the enormity of the challenge? You know, like you're sort of doing as best that you can, but you're dealing with people who have what um, I guess Alex Drain would call sort of like, in many cases, sort of like life sucks disease, right? Where there's so much going on and so much burden. And, you know, how do you sort of approach that feeling like you're still able to make a difference?
0: Yeah, you have to take pleasure in incremental progress. I think, <laughs> um, meaning that you, you know, especially when I, I also led a Medicaid health plan on behalf of United and we could make decisions with very, very limited resources to support people who couldn't uh, get transportation as an example to go to their doctor's office or they weren't able to get regular access to medications or they didn't have an air conditioner and it was super hot in the middle of the summer. So they're going to the ER um, for just to be able to breathe. You know, there are ways to make practical decisions to support people, and I think recognizing that at the end of every one of our decisions is my mother or my grandmother or my neighbor matters.
2: Exactly. Do you run into any problem with things you can do that you think will make sort of a, a tangible quality of life difference and things that will show up on some dashboard that can be sort of metricized and quantified?
0: Yeah, you know, I I think it's an important thing that we have to do all the time to create those linkages. Uh, You know, one thing that also sustained me, especially in the payer world, and it's funny because once I jumped ship to the provider space, people would say, how could you have ever worked for, you know, a big, bad payer? And, um, you know, I think that view is short-sighted. Obviously, I, I was in the payer space for a long time, and I believe deeply in the progress that they can help drive. But I think ultimately we have to be cognizant of sustainability. And the fact that, especially in healthcare, we have limited resources. So we have to allocate them in a judicious way and do it in a manner that can be sustained over time. And that, that's why the metrics matter, right? Um, but yeah, on an individual basis, sometimes we can lose sight of that. So we have to be very thoughtful that there's a patient at the end of every decision.
1: So you spent a fair amount of time at United, and then you left again back to the startup world uh, to a company called Evelyn, which is now obviously a public company, but at the time was a little startup. What what was it that led you back into the little company world?
0: You know, honestly, it was the mission of Evelyn. Uh, change healthcare was the you know very simple mission. And they were going to create a solution and, and did create a solution on behalf of health systems and push it out across payers. That was one big thing. You know, when I was at United, the closer when I was running that Medicaid health plan, I got much closer to physicians, much closer to patients. And I realized how hard it can be to affect change when you're negotiating contracts against the same parties whose behaviors you are trying to influence. And in my world, in Medicare and Medicaid, we we're always trying to get physicians to spend more time, as an example, with people who had multiple chronic illnesses or take the time to really think about their clinical complexities, even if they were there for one you know, diagnosis, as an example.
2: Wait, wait I'm sorry. So when you were doing that role, I'm sorry about that, you were... Um, you thought that you had to persuade the physicians to spend more time with patients because I always thought, <laughs>
0: does that sound counterintuitive to It you? sounds counterintuitive yeah.
2: because I always thought that the patients would love to spend more time and it would have done you know and always felt like they was it was having these relentless conver- negotiations with the payers about getting reimbursed for the most basic things that were their source of frustration were cutting into their patient time
0: Yeah it's an interesting perspective you know for us it wasn't just more time with every single patient. Right, And that might be the, the difference here. It was being thoughtful about one patient who maybe had three chronic illnesses and warranted that extra time, and then someone else who was patient who was healthy that um, maybe was consuming more health care than they needed.
2: So you wish they could de-average the time a little bit better. Exactly,
0: and be, and be deliberate about it. So much of what we do in our healthcare care system, and oftentimes in doctor's offices, is based on, uh, you know, how we've always done it, right? Or we have um, a certain amount of time for appointments, so everybody gets that allotted time. And being thoughtful about how to distinguish and how to personalize that approach is what we were advocating for.
1: So what was it like being back in the startup world? Was there a particular resource you missed the most or, you know, were there bumps along the way like there were in your other young company that you had to overcome? I missed
0: uh, actuaries.
1: <laughs> Pricing schmicing.
0: It, has anyone ever said that in the history of the world?
1: Maybe the mother of an actuary.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I went there and at a startup, everybody's doing everything, and and someone on my analytics team came to me and said, "What what should trend be?" And I said, Whoa, well, I have an opinion, but you don't want to ask the product lead what trend should be." You know, we should, we should have a debate. <laughs> there should be some push and pull here. And, uh, and I think really what, what you struggle with at a startup is just the, um, the lack of resources, uh, just sheer number of people, right, where everybody has to do everything. But the exciting thing about being there and what really has attracted me now twice more to other startups is being built for purpose. And knowing that you have just one thing, you kind of simplify what your focus is, And that way you can have even more meaningful impact and measurable impact.
1: That's, I mean, I totally get that, that focus, focus, focus thing. You know, um, VCs pound that into their companies constantly. But on the other hand, does that limit your growth? Does it limit your ability to sort of be visionary and think about the big horizon?
0: Well, I'll tell you what, I learned a lot from the leadership of Evelyn, who really did have broad vision, as an example. And my world coming into, or my, my perspective coming into that role was pretty specific to the payer world. In fact, I had to learn to say patient instead of member, as an example. It sounds so simple, but I had a certain mindset coming in. And I think what Frank, Seth, and Tom, our founders, knew is that we had to look more holistically at creating a problem. So over time, I started to appreciate that it wasn't just negotiating risk-based contracts, which was my job. And on behalf of health systems with payers, we needed to do that in parallel with uh, implementing a platform that could drive better decisions. And we had to think more broadly about restructures, longer-term uh, financial arrangements even to make some of the investments that we wanted to make in population health feasible. And so you're right, you know, it, you can't necessarily do something in isolation and truly have uh, a systemic change.
2: So there must have been really something about the startup mentality that grabbed you because once Evelyn grew beyond a certain point, you again left for a different startup uh, called Edion, um which I've written about a bit, um, and that's really focused on um, claims data, at least as of a year ago when I was uh, talking with one of the co-founders. Um, wh- what is it about the both uh, the approach of Edion that attracted you and what about their perspective on... Um, uh, on data do you think um, is especially intriguing?
0: So the thing about Etion that was most appealing to me and honestly made me jump out of my chair the first time I saw the platform and I told the founder, I don't even care if I join this company, do you realize what you have here? Because it was for the first time a linkage to me between clinical intervention and a valid uh, result. Meaning, you could draw a linkage between what was uh, what a patient was experiencing, and then what kind of quality or access to care or cost happened um, as a result.
2: Wait, but can you explain what Edion explain what Edion does and say how it's different from everybody else who is like everyone says everyone on the planet. You go to <laughs> op you go to Truven, says we're linking claims, we're linking EHR, we're linking it all together. We're all doing this already. What is it about this approach that struck you or strikes you, and what what are you doing and what is distinctive?
0: Yeah, thank you for bringing me back to that. We have a technology platform that uses epidemiology. It uses science in a way that is unique from other approaches that are out there. And we evaluate real-world data, which in healthcare just means any data collected outside of a controlled setting. And we're assessing the safety, effectiveness, and value of a clinical intervention, Mostly at this point in time, it's medications. And we're able to identify which sub-segments of the population, we call them cohorts, which patient cohorts are responding well to that given intervention or not, right? And then we're able to look at drug A versus drug B as an example and see who's likely to respond best to that. What's different about us is that we're committed to regulatory grade analytics. We have a, a scientific rigor to how we analyze the data and the transparency that we provide with respect to how we have made assumptions, the data that we've looked at, the kinds of analyses that we've run.
1: Can you give a specific example of where you could make a difference or where you have made a difference for someone?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, just even this week is an example. One of our um, scientists was presenting to a regulator about a drug that is focused on supporting kids with a rare disease. And the survival rate is uh, zero for people once they've gotten this diagnosis. And uh, we have reason to believe that it it, um, goes up significantly once the drug is taken. And what we're able to do is create a synthetic control arm out of real-world data. So instead of running a whole trial with multiple years and trying to uh, have a control group we're able to mimic the population in real-world data and use that as a point of comparison. So it saves money, it saves a lot of time, and a lot of patient anguish.
2: Right. So it sounds like, yeah, that's. I mean, my understanding is that's sort of like the flat iron um, playbook up to and including the close partnership with the FDA. But I always thought Eddie Young was focused on claims data specifically. That, that was their secret sauce. Um, and they were sort of focused on larger, I mean, when I was talking um, uh, w- uh, with Philip Brigham um, uh, uh, last year, he was always talking about, you know, it sounded like there were a, a lot of Uh, research projects with the FDA, actually, I thought that you guys were doing, but that involved large um, patient populations for cardiovascular disease, for lung disease. Um, I didn't realize that um, it sounds like you must also be going beyond the claims data if you're doing the the sort of the synthetic uh, cohort play.
0: We are, and we do have a number of partners. And you're right, initially, and oftentimes, I should say, claims is sufficient, right? And if there's a, a question out there where claims, or answering the questions that we have, then, then let's go with it. But there are often times when we need to take EHR registry data into account, and we've built our platform in a way that it's agnostic. So we're able to ingest these different kinds of data and, um, and create results. The work that we're doing with the FDA is in a demonstration project called Duplicate. And in Duplicate, they've asked us to uh, look at clinical trials, 30 of them, and see if we could duplicate those results using real-world data. And then recently they've added an additional seven trials that are still in progress to see what kind of um, conclusions we can draw from using real-world data.
2: But these are sort of like big indications. I mean, I hadn't associated edeon at all with rare diseases. I always thought these were more like CHF, um, uh, COPD kind of stuff, at least from what I remember reading.
0: Well, the science is applicable across therapeutic areas. And it is true, we do have TAs that, that we focused on, um, oncology, immunology, cardiometabolic, neurology. So there's areas where real-world data and real-world evidence have been more readily accepted. Uh, and then there are certainly applications within the rare disease space.
1: So, Carolyn, we're getting close to the end here of our time. And I'm thinking about your trajectory and knowing that... Um, you're a skier, a big skier, and you like to go fast and um, <laughs> steep. And I, I wonder if this is the, the, the defining character trait that, that drives you on your professional side as well.
0: Uh, you know, that's interesting. Uh, I've never been afraid of risk, Lisa. <laughs> and you're right, I do seek out uh, steeps, and I like to go fast, and I like to tackle tough problems. And healthcare certainly has no shortage of them.
1: <laughs> well, I know that, that you've, it's interesting that that whole crisis bargaining uh, discussion has sort of seeped through this conversation in its own ways. And so He's I'm wondering... obsessed with this. I am obsessed <laughs> with this. And I'm also obsessed with it because I know that Carolyn was um, a fan of singing Irish rebel songs in her youth. So I'm wondering if she'd be willing to sing us out with a little verse. <laughs> um,
0: uh, I, I can share one um, that maybe illuminates a little bit of, uh, about me. Um, I'm a rambler and I'm a gambler And I'm a long way from home And if you don't like me, just leave me alone I eat when I'm hungry, I drink when I'm dry And if the moonshine don't kill me I'll live till I die That's
2: awesome <laughs> That's <is> awesome, absolutely <laughs> awesome
0: I don't know
1: if that's what you were looking for <laughs> totally. Fantastic so you got to be careful oh, that, is fantastic. that is great, Karen Thank you so much for being on the show today It's awesome. so interesting to, to learn about you And really appreciate your time
0: Thank you, enjoyed the conversation Bye Today's guest,
1: Carolyn McGill, was speaking to us from Boston, Massachusetts, where the car is parked in Havid yacht um, do quit your day job. <laughs> I love her thoughts. You're about, no Jimmy Tingle. Yeah, really. Thank God. I love her thoughts about how businesses are uh, best when they're built for purpose. I really agree. Um, Do you think, David, that companies can sustain that orientation as they grow large?
2: Yeah, yeah. I I really think it's such an interesting challenge. I think the reason maybe we're both drawn to startups is because they really do have the benefit of focus and to pick a hard problem and to have people really focus on it. And I think once you get beyond that, it's a different
1: type of challenge. Yeah. Well, you can follow David's writing at Forbes and the occasional Wall Street Journal review. And you can follow the inimitable Lisa Sunin and her writing
2: at Venture Valkyrie. We are grateful to GE Ventures for their sponsorship today. GE Ventures, multiple paths to big impact. Shlante. Ciao.